To all men, I'm not calling you out, I'm calling you up. Welcome to the Therapy Brothers Podcast. I'm Brandon. I'm Tyler. We're brothers, we're therapists, and we know recovery. Bring your stories, your questions, your successes with real recovery. Hey, Tyler, you ready to have some hard conversations? Let's do it. Let the Therapy Brothers podcast begin. What is going on, you guys? Tyler here, your wandering therapist. I'm actually alone again today. We've been doing some traveling between Brandon and myself, so we've had a lot of episodes with just one or the other of us um, doing a single host job. I miss having him around. He's got passion and he's got good energy and he's got a lot of good insight. And I know a lot of you guys actually really like Brandon's point of view. So hopefully we'll have him back next week. And I can't wait to hear when he comes back, what his trip was like. Yeah. I hope it was a life-changing thing for him and his boy. Um, he was doing something with his boy that kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about with you guys today, where Brandon and I have this idea and this passion for wanting to help men become better men and the development of men. And it starts from boyhood, obviously. And we'll get into that a little bit today. But what he was doing was he was taking his son. In this case, it was halfway across the world. It doesn't have to be that, but he was taking his son for an initiation into manhood. He was taking him to a place where he was going to experience something completely different, emotional challenges that he's never experienced before, physical struggles and work that would be difficult on him as a step into manhood. And part of this initiation that he was talking about, that, that I'm talking about is, is that he's also going to do something with his son that's actually bigger than either he or his son. He's teaching his son to look to something bigger than himself. And so I was just thinking about that trip that he took with his son. And then I had a few things happen at church yesterday with myself and a couple of experiences happened over the last week where it's just really pressing on my heart to, to want to come and talk to, to all men here who are listening. And I hope that you guys are here listening, not in that same kind of a mode that you might have done year after year when you get sit down by your dad and get lectured, or you go to church and hear that talk in church that makes you feel like garbage. Um, I hope, I hope that you'll take it with the spirit that I intend it, which is, is that, I'm here to talk a little bit about why you are so desperately needed in this world, why God desperately needs you to be fighting for the truths, fighting for the hearts of your wives and children, being engaged in meaningful things of purpose and passion. And so I hope that you'll take that with that spirit that I intend it. It's not, this isn't a call out, even though sometimes it sounds like it, it's actually a call up to, to so many of you who are listening right now. Um, I, I had this experience yesterday where I was teaching a church lesson. I, I was invited to teach a church lesson and it was an interesting lesson because it was actually about this idea of it's a term that was mentioned in one of my church meetings a, a while back called spiritual face blindness. And when I very first heard the talk in the first place, 
that was given about spiritual face blindness, there was a little piece of me that kind of was like, oh, here we go. I'm going to be told that I'm spiritually face blind again, which makes me not good enough. And already I'm in the default setting of going to this place of I'm already not good enough. And now I'm going to be told I'm not good enough again. Right. That's actually not what was intended in the way that that talk was given, but that was my default setting to want to go into that. And, and then I listened to it again in preparation for this lesson that I was going to teach. And what I realized is, is that I, for 20 years, had been spiritually face blind. And w- when I looked at the definition of what it meant, and what that meant was that we develop an I- set of ideas about what it means to be a good Christian. And then we get busy following all of the tasks and to do lists that we're told that we need to do in order to be good people. And then maybe, and then maybe we'll be good enough. And then maybe God will love us. Then maybe we can actually have a relationship that that we could approach God in some way. And, and I started thinking about that and going, I've been living, I'd lived that way for most of my life, probably 20 years. The God that I was chasing was a God that would love me as soon as I was good enough. And then things shifted. And what's really crazy about it is that it was my recovery process that actually changed my relationship with God. And that's what actually took off the spiritual face blindness, where it's not about the checklist as much as it is the relationship with God that matters, the checklist will begin to take care of itself when I actually come to an understanding of who God is and who I am to God. And if I get into this, the wrestle of understanding who God is and who I am to God, then naturally I'm going to be led to the places where I would want to live certain principles and have a certain moral code and live certain values and all those commandments that you get talked about in the church, that will naturally kind of fall into place in some ways, but it will be done with a full heart. And that's what I wanted to talk a little bit about today is is that I look around, I'm sitting there to teach this lesson And after the lesson, I'm talking with like five or six guys outside in the hallway about the lesson and about the topic, about this topic of masculinity and to a man, I don't know what it was about that lesson, but to a man, all five or six of those guys in the aftermath got vulnerable. They started talking about where they feel compromised. They started talking about where their fears are and where their weaknesses are and what they worry about with their wives and their kids and we're sitting there talking in uh sitting there talking in church and one of the guys finally goes oh man this feels so good it feels so good to be able to talk about these things i haven't talked to anybody about these things man we should we should have like a group or something that we do this regularly <laughs> and i was like as like amen brother amen brother that's why i run like groups all week every week you know it's because there's something so powerful and beneficial to having a place to actually get real with the things that we face and um, and it got me thinking about that, that we live in a world where, where we've been fed certain messages that make it really difficult to actually live a wholehearted life, especially if you're a man. You're, you're really only allowed to show two, two kinds of emotions, you know, either stoicism or anger seems to be what 
what seems to have a corner on masculinity these days, um, at least in the way that things get pr- promoted and projected, right? And and what that does is I think what you see, and I think maybe you're sitting here listening to this and you feel this way, or, or you, if you look around at the world that we live in, take an inventory of the men in your life and ask how many of them you, you actually think are fully living, fully wholeheartedly. And what I think you'd see is I think you'd see a lot of casualty that's going on right now. And what I mean by casualty is a few things. There's, there's a few things that I think are casualties to the men that I see and that I that I work with on a day-to-day basis and that I'm trying to help move to a place where they can actually see their true value as men. Um, the first one is, is that I see tons of what I would call dormant power. There's all of this power inside of so many of the men that I work with. And the only thing that's preventing that power from being unleashed on the world in very good ways is that the is that the man who holds it is too blind to see it. He's living in a place where he's incurred some wounds over his life, maybe had some traumatic events happen, or maybe got the wind knocked out of him emotionally, or maybe lost a job, doesn't feel like he's good enough in some way. And that little thread of shame just keeps him sort of like not fully willing to accept all of the goodness. I, I was driving in the car one time with with a, with uh, my partner Chase and a couple other friends, and uh, we were driving to a certain place and we were just talking back and forth. There were like five of us, and uh, w- one of the guys was like really busy wanting to talk about lots and lots and lots of stuff, and then one of the other guys just kind of sat quietly, didn't say a whole lot, but. Um, he kind of humble, like really humble guy. And um, afterwards I was sitting there and thinking about the dynamic that had taken place inside of the conversation that we had had. And it occurred to me that in some ways the guy who had the most depth and such a wealth of information to offer with the topic that we were talking on, he didn't offer any of it. And he just let everybody else talk. And we all missed an opportunity to learn from him because he didn't offer up his expertise. Now he was doing it because that's kind of just kind of guy he is. He's great, low key, kind of easygoing guy. But the other guys in the car did not even know the gift that they missed because this friend of mine didn't offer the expertise that he had on the topic that we were talking about. And I think that happens all the time. And I think that he doesn't even know what an expert he is. This is something that happens to me all the time, honestly, where like we, we talk, we live in this world that we live in. Like I talk recovery all day, every day with people. It's just, it's just what I do. My wife frequently reminds me, she's like, Hey, Tyler, could you like actually explain what you mean by some of these, this language that you're using now? Because, because nobody understands what you're saying right now. And I'm in my head going like, oh, this is just natural, normal, everyday stuff. I am blind to the fact that I have a wealth of knowledge that I could offer the world. And because I'm blind to it, I don't offer it to certain people, right? That's one way that I see dormant power. That's one way that I see casualty. Second way goes along with that is the playing small. This is where somebody actually knows 
somewhere deep inside that there's some goodness in them, but they play small. They stand on the sidelines. How many men do you know right now in your life that you know have something burning inside of them of something they need to do, whether that's to go and make an amends to somebody or to go pursue a dream or to go try to do a hard thing or to to develop a new skill or a new hobby or something. And they continually talk themselves out of it for fear of failure. And so what they end up doing is sitting on the sideline and not moving forward with whatever it is that would allow them to step fully into their power. And I can relate to this one. You know, I, I told this story a long time ago on the podcast, but I, I remember uh, working for the drug courts of Southeastern Idaho for several years. And I'd go home from work every, every day. And I would frequently go home and I'd start thinking like, man, I like that I'm developing some new skills. I'm getting better at what I'm doing. I think I might be able to actually go out on my own and actually do my own therapy practice. And I'd go home and I'd tell my wife that, and she would always be supportive and say, yeah, like, I think you'd be really good at that. My boss would say, you know, you're eventually going to go out on your own. Like, you're going to be really good at that. You know, people were giving me the right kinds of feedback, but deep inside there was something that was holding me back. And, and, and what it was, was my fear. I was afraid of failure and I was afraid of what that failure would actually mean if the people that meant most saw it. Right. And so I went home, I was telling my wife one day about my plans again. And she's like, Hey Tyler, like, are you actually going to follow through on any of this stuff? And I said, well, I want to, she's like, well, well, what's the next step? You know? And we talked about like next steps and things. And then she said, why are you not doing those things? And that's where I kind of had a little bit of a meltdown. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to fail. I'm afraid that if I fail, we might be living under an overpass. She said, what's worst case scenario? Really, Tyler, if you go and you try and you fail. And I'm making these stories up in my head. Like uh, my wife's not going to want to be with me anymore. My kids are going to see me as a failure. They won't, you know, they won't love me. I'm not going to be able to provide for them. And she just looked at me and she was like, Tyler, honestly, like worst case scenario, you, you, you come back and you get a job like the one you're currently working. Like well, you're, you're, you're actually living your worst case scenario right now. And when she said that, I was like, oh, and then this was the key. She said, Tyler, I would rather be with a man who tries and fails than a man who sits on the sideline and does nothing at all. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, she's, she's right. That the next week I was already into starting to build my practice. And it wasn't easy and it was hard. There's lots of failure, lots of tough times, lots of discouragement. Um, but it, but it needed to happen. And to all of you men who are listening to this right now, there's something on your heart. There's something on your heart right now that only your own fear is preventing you from stepping into. And so I'm going to pass along the message that my wife gave to me that a life that's worth living is way better in trying and failing than it is sitting on the sideline and letting it pass you by. And, uh, and you lose your heart. You slowly give away pieces of your heart when you sit on the sideline and play small. 
It's time to stop acting like you're not good enough. It's time to start actually taking a look at the fact that the blindness that you have is from the shame that you feel and that you're the one who has the power to identify that shame and begin the process of letting it go and stepping into a new life. There is a fresh life right in front of your face. And it only needs you to step through that little shadow of fear. And when you do, you will become a gift to the people that you're around, to the people that you choose to serve. You'll be a gift to your friends and to your family because you'll be in touch with your heart. It's that loss of touch with heart that's so difficult, so painful. Living in that place of like a grayscale, you know, like just go through the motions, doing your duty, but but really like but really kind of dead inside. Um there's not a lot that's getting churned back to the world that way. And because of that, you can't be happy because you were built. You were built to make this world a better place. Um, the third way that I see casualty, and this is one that's like probably one of the ways that I feel like the most annoyed by sometimes. And I feel bad because I've been this guy sometimes without even knowing it. But the casualty is, is that you actually hold on to your pride and you double down on your shame. And then you actually start to have real negative impacts on the lives of other people and then, of course, that feeds more negative impact on your own heart. What I mean by that is like, you know, this is a frequent occurrence, some some type of a version of this, where a man gets married, has a couple little kids or something. He kind of holds on to his secrets and keeps that little like extra secret in the in the dark back closet of his addiction, thinking it's only going to affect him. Then of course it comes out and D-Day happens and then he starts to go, oh, wow, I maybe have a problem and I need to work on this and I actually maybe need to overcome this. And even I will admit that I don't really want to have this in my life. I actually want to stop with my sexual addiction, my pornography, whatever it is. Um, right up until the point that it gets hard and then I don't want to stop anymore but I'm not honest enough with my partner to actually tell my partner that I'm really not going to give it up. So I'll go through the motions and I'll pretend, you know, I'll pretend to put passwords on my thing and then I'll just sneak around and hide and lie again. Or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say that I'm going to do something and then I really want to get better, but then I actually don't do anything at all. Um, so I just give a bunch of lip service. Um, what you're doing without knowing that you're doing it, is you're harming your own heart because you're not living with integrity and because you're actually harming the people in your life that matter the most. And then when you've harmed the people that matter the most, you don't want to acknowledge it. So you have to figure out a way to justify your actions. So you figure out a way to blame them or resent them or feel like it's their fault. You know, if my wife wasn't so mad all the time, then I wouldn't have to act out and it'd be a lot easier or, you know what, she's really never given me a whole bunch of love, so I got to get it somewhere. So I might as well just continue to look at porn or go to the massage parlors or whatever else it is. You can already hear it, that the mind is moving you to actually playing small again. And then what you end up doing is clinging to something. You cling to this as if it's like you're precious. It's like the Lord of the Rings, you know, my precious, like I can't let go of this addiction 
thing because it's been there for me for so many years, which it has, it's served you a purpose and it has cost you a price. And you would rather continue to pay the price eventually to losing everything and leaving a wake of destruction in your path rather than just looking yourself in the mirror and taking accountability and asking yourself what manner of man you want to be. And I believe that deep inside of you, every single man, deep inside of every single man, there is something that will never go away. I call it the light of Christ. You can call it a force for good, whatever you want to call it. There is something inside of every single man that will eventually make its way to the top, even if we try to bury it, which says, I want to be a good man. I want to be a good man. We all do. In order to be a good man, we have to begin to lay down those false beliefs of our shame. We have to be willing to lay down the pride that we cling to. You know, get in a fight with your wife over some little detail about your bottom lines because you haven't taken the initiative to actually go all the way to conquer your addiction yet. And I get it. There's fear. There's there's habit. There's pain involved. All of that stuff. But but then what you are is you're you're a wounded casualty on the side of the road of life. And yes, there needs to be some healing. That's what recovery work is. But that healing, this is what's interesting. The healing is always available. But the man who can't humble himself to receiving that healing is the one who never gets it. And so those are the that's the way that I kind of see the casualties all around us. And I, you know, it it frustrates me so much because I see such good, good men, men that I excuse me, I'm gonna get emotional here, men that I love deeply who, for whatever reason, I believe it's shame. I believe it's that professed allegiance to shame, never are willing to actually just let go and give themselves over to the true principles that are found in a wholehearted recovery. So how does this happen, you guys? You know, let's let's talk a little bit about how it happens, the typical thing. I I told this story in church <laughs> yesterday. I uh I I grew up as the oldest, you know. Brandon's always got a little bit of little brother syndrome about this. <laughs> you guys can hear it. He'll like this when he hears this. Um I grew up with a lot of pressure on my shoulders, perceived from my own perceptions, you know, uh, to be a good example, to, to live a certain way. We grew up in a, in a really kind of like very good structured home. Um, I principles that I still live by today, we were taught, they were ingrained into us. Um, but I felt a ton of pressure about that. And part of it was because I got stuck in that place of spiritual blindness where I've started to focus so much on the things I needed to do to be good enough rather than actually developing the relationship with God that I needed to understand who he was and to have him show me who I was. And, um, I remember one time we we had this kind of tradition where we'd go to a certain church meeting that we have twice a year. It was called priesthood session. It was for the men only. And it was this kind of tradition. My dad would take us, you know, it was just me when I was 12. And then after my brother started to get 
older, we'd all go together. We all sit kind of in these like really old hard chairs, <laughs> listen to listen to the leaders of our church talk about certain principles. And one thing that was awesome about priesthood is, is that it felt like the leaders kind of went a little bit more directly with their messages during priesthood session rather than some of the other sessions that we'd go to. And we'd have this, I still remember this, I kind of fond memories sitting down with my dad and then my brothers, me and my two brothers, people called us the clones. My dad called us the brother of the Buffalo. We all, we basically just looked a lot the same with just steps down by about a foot of height because of our age differences. And so we're sitting there in line across the back of this gymnasium on these hard chairs, listening to these messages. And uh, inevitably about halfway through the meeting, we'd kind of start to stir and get upset. So my dad would kind of pass a stick of gum down the road to try to keep us occupied and have us take our mind off of the, the discomfort of sitting in those chairs. Well, when I was a senior, um, I remember a talk that was given by one of my church leaders and uh, he talked a little bit about the, the, about pornography and the scourge that it was on the earth and like what, it, what the consequences might be of our, of our lives. Right. And uh, I, I had already started to establish a regular pattern of pornography use by the time I heard this talk, it was like, I, I was probably looking at pornography multiple times a week by, by the time I heard this talk. So I'm sitting in this dark gymnasium next to my dad, me, Brandon and Rex. And he starts talking about all of these things that will consume us and that, are, that could potentially cause us problems in our life. And he talked about pornography. And as soon as he started talking, I just kind of slunk down into my chair. I was almost like laying down flat in my chair and then he started talking about other things. He talked a little bit about drug addiction and he talked about gambling and he talked about just kind of all of the vices that are there in this world that have a potential to kind of, <laughs> excuse me, entrap us. By the time we got done with the meeting, I looked down the row and I had slunk down and then Brandon had slunk down and then Rex had slunk down. And so we were all like laying flat, just kind of in our own, sitting there in kind of our own little like pool of shame, you know, and, uh, I afterwards, I remember feeling so terrible about myself. And that's where the loss of heart really starts to happen is whatever happens. Maybe we do something wrong and we feel shame for it, or maybe we experience some real trauma or some, even some small traumas, but it sends messages that we start to interpret in certain ways that we're not good enough. When we start to lose heart, we start to withdraw from the true source and when we withdraw from the true source, we're left with whatever is left for the world to teach us with. And we lose heart because then it fuels more of the same. And all of us, all of us incur a wound. We're built hardwired with that good piece inside of us that says, I want to be good. I want to be a good man. And then we live a human life that leads us to frailties and struggles and challenges and failures. And if we're not careful, we lose heart. And my belief is that whatever you find yourself stuck in any type of an addiction or any type of a numb place or hopelessness or shame is that that is actually the fruit of the loss of heart. And that a solid recovery is actually the reclamation of that heart. 
And so I want to just talk with you using some of John Eldridge's stuff a little bit really quickly about the three parts of the masculine heart that he identifies, because I really relate to them. When I, when I was given wild at heart by Brannon several years ago, he didn't even really know what I was going through with my own recovery stuff, but he gave me the book and I read it. I consumed it. It just resonated with me. I, I felt so much truthfulness in what I had read about because I related so much to it. And, and these are three parts that I really related with that, that you're already good. If you're, if you're listening to this, you're already good. You just, without knowing it, chosen to believe that you're not. And in order to reclaim the heart, there's three parts of the heart that have to be cultivated, become a way of life, become part of who you are. And if you'll do these things, you'll find new life. Uh, and so the three parts of the masculine heart, this is that every man, we have it born into us. Every man needs a battle to fight. Whether you like it or not, you were born for war. You were born to do something, to take action, uh, born to find something that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose and passion. And a lot of us, are afraid of the places that we might have to go to chase those, that purpose and that passion. But you are actively, I believe already being cultivated through your life experiences and through your own struggles and challenges towards some kind of a possible purpose and passion. And so ask yourselves, am I, am I actually actively engaged in pursuing and cultivating purpose and passion, whatever that is being a, the, world's best husband. Uh, my job for me is my purpose and my passion. It's like a calling. I feel I feel lucky because I look around the world and I, d I don't see many men who are actually scratching the itch of that purpose and passion very much. And I've sort of grown into mine. Um, but it's so valuable. It brings life. It brings fire. It puts something inside of you that says it gives you motivation if it's being cultivated. And if you're not cultivating that, you lose all of those things, right? So purpose and passion, what do you have that you'd want to go and develop some purpose and passion? Who is God creating you to be through your experiences, purpose and passion? Second part of the masculine heart is that every one of us, we have it built into us to have the desire for an adventure to share. We want to go on a quest, you know, from the time we're born, we're already thinking about things like we love watching shows. Like I'm going to reference this and get made fun of big time, but we, we love watching shows like Willow, uh, like Lord of the Rings, you know, like the man in the iron mask. Um, all of these things, of course, the classic ones, Braveheart or, you know, Gladiator, we, we resonate with these things because they, they scratch the itch of both the passion and the adventure, the quest. And mo unfortunately, what happens is, is that most of us at best end up in a cubicleized life where the, the only quest that we have is the daily quest to try to get our partners to have sex with us at the end of the day. Which isn't bad that you want to have sex every day, but but it's the actual adventure part of life that brings savor 
it brings vibrance. It brings color. It brings this kind of like full component of a whole life rather than just going through the mundaneness of just the duty that you perform every day. Right. And then the third part of the, the masculine heart, according to Eldridge, is, is that it's built into us to want to revere and rescue beauty. We want to be protectors of the things that are beautiful. It's kind of built into us. That's why it's so so painful to watch a man who could be protecting his wife and his children playing so small by trying to hold his addiction. That's why that feels so shameful is because it's going directly against the grain of who you were created to be. We want to be able to, you know, I heard this term, it's actually a term that's in the movie Braveheart, but I heard it in a, in a podcast earlier this week that we need to have that purpose, passion, battle. That that's That's the aggressive part of masculinity. But I love the line. He said, right at the end of, right at the end of Braveheart, it said they fought like warrior poets and they fought like Scotsmen. And I've heard that line a thousand times, but it never occurred to me that that's actually this part of the masculine heart is not just are we warriors. We also have something inside of us that longs to be a poet. And what I mean by that is something, somebody that can love somebody that can live according to a code that allows us to move towards something bigger than ourselves. We want to be able to give ourselves. We're we're actually not really fully happy unless we're able to be providing something for somebody else. Like that's that kind of scratches the itch of what we were born to do. And um and many of us don't cultivate that that softer, poetic providing kind of side to ourselves. A lot of us have felt like that's been seen as a sign of weakness in the past. Um, but but you were created to be a warrior poet. You are all created to be warrior poets and to fight for the hearts of your wives and your children, to cultivate the beautiful, to partake of the arts, to experience nature. And if we're doing all three of those things, battle and adventure and the cultivation and protection of beauty, we are living connected to the truth of who we were built to be by God. Now, most of us might look at those three things and say, oh, I do really good at this one thing. I, I, I'm really good at working. Um, okay, good. Then what are you going to do to cultivate the other two parts of that? Um, maybe you look at that and go, geez, that's foreign to me. Great. Don't feel overwhelmed by it. Pick one area pick one thing that you're going to commit to and then live with your integrity and stick to it, but move forward. Um, so I just want to share a couple of last thoughts with you here. Um, these are some things that I share frequently with my clients. A lot of them have heard them already, but these are some of the things that have stuck with me over the course of my own recovery work. The first one is a quote that says, when a man makes war on his own weaknesses, he engages in the holiest war that mortals ever wage. 
The reward that comes from victory in this struggle is the most enduring, most satisfying, and most exquisite that man may ever experience. Has it ever occurred to you that the weaknesses that you're faced with, that maybe you've even tried to take with, take, take to God to take them from you, are the very things that are allowing you to wage the holiest war you may ever wage? And the victory that comes from this struggle will be the most enduring and most satisfying, most exquisite that man may ever experience. I can personally say that in my own experience that my weaknesses have yielded some of my greatest outcomes, but it's been difficult. It really has been a war, a war on our own weaknesses. Um, I hope that you might take the challenge to wage war on your weakness for the sake of your growth, for the sake of your growth, not because you're some shameful, horrible person, but because it's going to help you grow. Second quote here. This is a call, kind of a call out to some of you men who are still playing a little bit small and who are still trying to hold on to the things that won't yield you really hap- real, real happiness and aren't willing to to take the steps yet to just, just do what's necessary to change your life. Uh, Men will work hard for money. They will work harder for other men, but men will work hardest of all when they are dedicated to a cause until willingness overflows obligation. Men fight as conscripts rather than following the flag as patriots. Duty is never worthily performed until it is performed by one who would gladly do more if only he could. Take a look at your own lives, you guys. Are you fighting as a conscript, going to the day-to-day grind, hitting the cubicle, working half of a recovery? If you are, it's likely that you haven't been able to tap into the willingness that comes with the reason why. You got to go find your why. Like Your why is important. And your why is going to be found, I believe, through a wrestle with God. And I'll just end with this today. I love this poem. It's famous. You've heard it before. But I want to share it. It says, it's called If by Rudyard Rudyard Kipling. If you could keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and make your dreams your master, if you can think and make thoughts your aim and not make thoughts your aim, If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools, if you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss, if you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. 
if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can feel the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Man, step up. You were built to be men of integrity. You were built to be men of passion and purpose. The world needs you. They need all of you. I believe that God wants you. He wants all of you. He wants even your weaknesses. He can make your weaknesses so beautiful. You've simply got to give your heart to something other than yourself. I love you. I am so proud to be able to work with so many of you. And I want your freedom. So, man, there's the call. Uh, Hopefully that's helpful, you guys. I hope you guys have an awesome day. 